I'm Ellen Lee Beter. I'm Jake Morecambe. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SER, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. On the show today... And every time you go into the lab and try something new, the results you get are always stunning. It's like, whoa, you, I didn't see that coming. When you do something new and it's, it's so fast and so effective, it's like, what? <laughs> really? This one's a really cool story that a number of science buffs are pretty psyched about. What's it about? I'll give you a clue. Breathing and walls. Breathing walls? Mm. Sounds like uh, something out of a horror movie or, I don't know, being surrounded by walls of people who are just, like, breathing loudly. I'm sorry. Can you stop breathing so loud, honey? He's like... (laughs) Breathe quietly. Do you hear yourself breathing? (sighs) Oh, that's just gross. Well, it's not that, and we'll get to it a little bit later on, but first... Remember that show we did a couple of months back on human waste? How could I forget the poop show? Ah, the poop show. (laughs) Memories. Well, one of the stories we did on that show was where does our waste go? Like, after you do your business on the toilet, once it gets flushed down, what happens to it? For the most part, in a place like Australia, we're attached to a centralised sewer system. We flush our toilets, our waste goes to a treatment plant, the water is treated... Our poop is sludged out and goes through a number of processes before being reused. Yeah, Re- it, yeah reused. it can be reused. Uh, what about in more rural areas? You know, toilets aren't always so glamorous out there. Well, if you drive out into the middle of Australia, maybe you'll see more outhouses, which still happen. My mm-hmm. uncle's got one. Or port or maybe even people physically moving the waste around themselves. Can't say I'm envious of that. Well, you've got to do what you've got to do. <laughs> but we still have it pretty lucky here in Australia. However, for a place like Indonesia, this manual practice over the next couple of years is going to be happening more and more. Every year, is it 50 million incidents of uh, waterborne disease in Indonesia? It's, it's a, an incredibly high statistic. And so it's a really important question of what's the actual performance of these systems once they're installed. This is Katie Ross. She's from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. And she's part of a research team looking at how sewer systems work in Indonesia. And it's not as simple as you may think. Currently, 2% of people are served by uh, centralised sanitation, which is similar to the type of sanitation services we have here in Australia. And I think it's on the order of 60% of people are serviced by on-site sanitation, which is septic tanks or pits where the waste is gathered on the residential property. And then another 2% are serviced by community-scale sanitation systems. Community sanitation. Like everybody going to the toilet together. (laughs) Well, less everybody going all together and more going to the same place. What that refers to is systems that are between 25 to 100 households that are connected by simple sewer systems. It can also refer to public toilets where a building is constructed and there may be four public toilets. And if the community doesn't have a toilet within their house, then that becomes the facilities that they use on a daily basis. 
I know it sounds a bit rich, but I wouldn't be happy if every time I needed to use the toilet, I had to run down to the shops to go. No way. Neither would I. Sometimes it just comes on way too quick. (laughs) You got food poisoning from that restaurant, didn't you? No, I had the same thing that she had, and I I hope you're fine. (laughs) Oh, my. Okay. Oh, no. Why is this happening? Nothing's happening. I just need to get off this white carpet. No, okay. No, not the bathroom. Everybody, go outside. I'm serious. There's a bathroom across the street. But for the communities where these systems are, it's all they've got. National government and NGOs and communities worked together in a very close partnership to select sites. And those sites were mainly um, urban poor areas where they were already quite dense and developed, and it would be hard to retrofit a centralised system in there. And the community-based systems, there are more on the way. Well, actually, it's a, it's not only 2%. It will be increased the percentage until 7.5% from the total population. That's Prast. Prast heads Aksansi, the Association for Community-Based Sanitation Organisations in Indonesia. So instead of we have 400 in the last couple of years, and then we have now 14,000 units, and it will be 100,000 more in 2019, which is the huge number, huge service, huge people. And it's the same number... Uh, as centralized, that is huge, I think. This is all part of the Indonesian government's promise to provide 100% of its citizens with access to sanitation. And as Prast says, this is all going down before 2019. So there's less than three years left to install more than 10 times the current amount of these community-based systems. Where in Indonesia is this all happening? Indonesia has 534 cities. Right. <laughs> and this community-based sanitation is built in uh, 476, if I'm not wrong. So that's a spread everywhere. <laughs> when you build just one, sometimes it's not enough because more people live in that area. So you might need two until three uh, unit install. So whenever one is finished with a certain year, and then it will be appear in the next year. So then the number is growing quickly. Whenever I'm at work or in the shopping centre or even at a music festival, it always feels like there are never enough toilets. But this plan sounds like there are going to be too many. Do you reckon they can ship some to us? (laughs) Well, it's a very ambitious plan. Not sure about that. But the thing Katie and Prast are concerned about is who's going to look after these toilets and maintain them. Well, who looks after them now? The people. And so the main principle behind that is that Um, National government, NGOs, communities would work together to select the sites, um, those urban poor areas where there was a demand that um, people were calling for the sanitation and they would select the type of technology and the community would build it in partnership with government. And then once it was fully constructed, the system was handed over to the community for them to operate and maintain. Imagine being the person in charge of that. That's so not the type of power I'd be interested in. Well, it's funny that you say power because that's what they have and maybe they have too much of it. According to Katie and Prast, it seems the local governments are shirking a lot of the responsibility onto these people under the guise of community empowerment. Uh, But that whole power balance has got out of hand. And so now the the selection of the communities happens much faster. But the data from our research has shown that with the ramp up in um, development and construction, the likelihood of the success of the operation and maintenance phase decreases. 
and it also creates some big problems for the operators. If a pump breaks or if there's a major problem within the system, the community, it's challenging for them to go to work, feed their family, take care of the rest of their life responsibilities and figure out, troubleshoot the system. The systems are relatively uh, simple technology, but it's more those logistical questions of how do we pay for this? Who do we hire? Who has the expertise to fix this? And when do we find the time to do it? I find it interesting that the local governments are like, we'll build you more of these sewer systems because you need them, but lol jokes, you're the ones who have to maintain them. Isn't that the government's job? There's a very strong assumption that local government and government should be the uh, service provider, and it's even ingrained in international norms like the human right to water and sanitation. But within that, the duty bearer is government. That's a very strongly held norm, but then you also hear about some innovative places in Scandinavia and the U.S. that are experimenting with community-led or co-management between communities and government of service provision, not necessarily sanitation. But within Indonesia, local government is legally responsible, but because of this community empowerment means local government is less likely to, to be involved And if you had more local government investment... From an efficiency perspective alone, looking at in the next five years, if national government has a goal of 100,000 of these systems, it'd be much more effective to have 500 local governments uh, running them as opposed to 100,000 community-based organizations. And if the local governments took on a role more like this, Prast said she'd be happy to meet them halfway. I feel that no one wants to maintain this facility, so it's always coming back to us as a community, which is sometimes unfair because then uh, every time we have problem, just like left alone. But it, it will be possible if, in one condition, if our voice, it will be taken place and have the, the same position in the process of decision-making, and we know about it, and we're part of it, and we know how it will be going long term, then you provide support whenever needed, and you actually make the follow-up action on that, it will be okay. Prast from the Association for Community-Based Sanitation Organisations in Indonesia. listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. Have you ever driven through the Sydney Harbour Tunnel before? Mm, yes, although I'm a bit ashamed to admit it on a sustainability show. Sustainability champion not. <laughs> um, but what did it smell like? What, what what did it smell like? Yeah, like what what did it smell like being in the tunnel? Like if I, I actually I've had the misfortune of driving through it like in a car with no air conditioning with the windows down oh. and it's yeah it smells pretty pretty fumey. So what would you what's your solution to get rid of that fumey smell? You're asking because I have a, a science degree in air freshener. Yeah. Um. I yeah literally just that air freshener. Mm. I, I don't know. It's just sprayed around next to the exhaust pipes or maybe even aromatic candles. Oh, I reckon wow. I reckon they'd work a treat. Great idea. Or or even better, 
get rid of all the cars and get rid of the smell in the process. True. Well, ideally, it would be great to get rid of all the cars, but seeing as the population keeps growing and growing... And, and keeps driving and driving. Yeah, more people keep driving and driving. I don't think that's really an option on the table, but a research group from the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney, have developed a technology that could not only get rid of the smell but could also freshen the air and get rid of all those car fumes in the tunnel. They're calling it a breathing wall, and it's made up entirely of plants. Here's the program director, Dr Fraser Torpy. The best place for a green wall is in front of your face. You go out in the bush on the weekend to be with plants. If plants are indoors with you, your working environment's much happier. So the closer to you, the better. Try it. Put plants in your workspace, and there's none in this studio now, and it's bleak. If there were plants <laughs> on the walls, we'd both be happier. And there's acoustic benefits as well. So, so honestly, people who say, oh, plants are dust collectors and so on, go and try it. In my lounge room, there's 16 indoor plants. It looks fantastic. Okay, it makes me happy. My office is full of plants, and when they're not dying from the horrible atmosphere from the air conditioning, <laughs> um, they make me happier at work. They'll make you happier at work too. Try it. What about some places that people might not expect? That where, where would you plan to put them? Wow, how about stairwells would be good. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be fantastic. Well, I think we've all been surprised about the capacity that the system has to remove really high levels of, of air pollutants. In our chamber trials with particulate matter, we've got a 216-litre Perspex chamber. We're giving it an extreme Beijing day air pollution in there, it pulls that air pollution out within five minutes. So clearly the capacity of this this breathing wall system we have is absolutely massive. So that leads into some of Sydney's major air quality problems, like traffic tunnels. There's no reason why with research, that we couldn't integrate the capacity of this green wall system into removing some of that terrible air pollution that comes out of traffic tunnels. Some of the the air quality inside the tunnels in Sydney's is around Beijing level. It's, it's extremely damaging to your health. With appropriate use of these green walls, we reckon in the future, given enough research and given enough, I guess, momentum from the government to, to, to fund these, these big-scale projects, we could potentially remove that pollution from Sydney's traffic tunnels. We believe, we're confident we've got the capacity to do that. Does this wall breathe? Um, absolutely. It's unlike your traditional plant walls, which are just basically a bunch of pot plants arranged vertically. This system's got fans associated with it. What they functionally do is they take polluted air from indoor spaces, move them through both the soil that the plants are growing in and the plants themselves. In the during which the air gets purified, it gets returned to the room. Fantastic. So it does absolutely breathe. It breathes in, dirty air, and then breathes out clean air. Is that just the natural processes of the plants taking in whatever sort of gassy substance and then getting rid of it? Um, It's partly the plants. Plants and also the potting mix both perform different functions as far as removing air pollutants are concerned. Um, There are, I guess, three main categories of of bad things in in indoor air in Sydney. Uh, Carbon dioxide that we breathe out. There's particulate matter, which comes from mainly diesel road traffic, which hangs around the air, goes all the way down deep inside our lungs and causes cancer and a whole lot of other horrible things. And there's also um, volatile organic compounds, which are like solvent vapours that come out of most plastics and modern building materials. Now, back to the plants versus the soil. The plants will are the part that removes the carbon dioxide. So they make us 
up for us breathing out carbon dioxide, the plants will take that back in and just turn it into more plant. The particulate matter is functionally filtered by the soil. Of course, that particulate matter is not particularly nice being diesel exhaust. So what happens is that that's full of all sorts of toxins and so on. When it's removed, it's it's sequestered inside the soil, uh, the bacteria in the soil will eat those toxic materials. Just simply eat it and turn it into harmless, healthy bacteria. Um, The volatile organics, the solvents, they're removed in a similar way. They're taken inside the soil component of the system and they're broken down once again by the bacteria and turned into completely harmless things. Is it a particular type of soil or is it just your generic soil? It is a particular type of soil, but it doesn't really matter. We've found that pretty much anything that a plant will grow in will support the bacteria that will do these functions. We've grown them in in, uh, vermiculite, perlite, all sorts of volcanic materials, which have got no nutrients and no structure to them whatsoever. They still develop the natural bacteria, and they perform just as well as soil after a few weeks. What about the plants? What type of plants is it normally? Same again. It absolutely doesn't matter. The ones we're using currently are really common indoor plants. They're common for a really good reason, because they survive indoor conditions, which is just a horrible environment if you're a plant, because it's low humidity and really low light and so on. As far as pulling down carbon dioxide, all the palms, so Chemodoria, Dipsis, Howia fosteriana, all palm trees are phenomenal at removing carbon dioxide from the air. Haven't tested a cactus yet. They might not work. Don't use a cactus. <laughs> so essentially, it's just a potted plant system on the inside of an enclosed area. Yeah, more or less, with, with the, this system that moves the indoor air through the system to accelerate the process of of pollutant removal. The fan speed is very important. Uh, We're working with our engineer colleagues who are using some pretty high-tech apparatus to try and get a handle on exactly what airflow rate's necessary. Any fan will work. It'll do something, but you might get dust kicked up and, and so forth. You might dry the plants out if the fans are on too high. But getting that flow perfect is the hard part. As long as you can do millimetres per second airflow rates. If you can measure that, good on you. <laughs> Just first thing to strike to me is, don't plants need sunlight and water? Clearly, the, the system has to be watered. It's just a, basically, it's, it's, it's similar to an indoor plant that requires watering. So all of the large commercial systems that we're working on at the moment will have watering systems built into to, to the componentry. The plants that have been chosen for the indoor walls tolerate and grow effectively at very low light levels. So with a moderate enhancement of the indoor light so that they'll they'll have lighting systems, they won't be scary bright or anything. There will be a little bit of additional light built into the system. That'll be enough for the plants. Um, If you chose... Australian natives or plants like that, you'd need much, much more light. We, we researched that a while back to try and get some Australian natives in these green walls, and the amount of light they require is, is bordering on impractical. It's, it's really bright. But the ones we're using, just a little slight, more small lighting systems. And you said as well, well, in an enclosed environment, say maybe like a highway tunnel or something, when the plants are taking in all that's emitted from cars, it, it, it encourages them to grow. Um, that's a question that we're researching now. I guess we've, we know the system works in indoor air quality level environments. Uh, watch this space. The gear's set up. We're ready to go. We're just waiting for the current batch of plants to reach reasonable level of maturity, and they're going to be put in the chamber of death and subjected <laughs> to just hideous levels of filthy, black, stinking, greasy air pollution for about two months, and we'll see what happens. And every time you go into the lab and try something new, 
the results you get are always stunning. It's like, whoa, you, I didn't see that coming. I, I knew this stuff works, obviously. I've done it for years. But, but when you do something new and it's, just, it's so fast and so effective, it's like, what? It's, <laughs> really? <laughs> I've, when there's been no one around over the years, I've done some pretty stupid things. Like this thing's been working. I've thought, oh, let's really stuff it up. Hey, let's, let's, let's give it 50 mils of benzene in the chamber, which is enough to – if you were in that chamber, you'd be dead within 20 seconds. And and you come back the next day and it's gone. It's completely gone and the air's cleaner than in the lab. And it's like, really? That, that's, that's amazing. Wow. Dr. Fraser Torpy, Program Director of Environmental Sciences in the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. Jake, did you ever collect anything when you were younger? I remember when I was about eight and my family and I, we were going to South Australia and I knew about that whole cash for cans thing. So I would be saving all these Coke cans or water bottles and all that sort of stuff so that I could take them with me when I went to South Australia. (laughs) I didn't do it, but I was planning to. Get like $2. Two dollars, yeah. It would like, probably cost you more to, you know, take them on the plane. Yeah, I, I, eight-year-old logic. <laughs> um, well, the cash for can scheme—it's you know been around for a while. It's been in South Australia for ages. But is it time that the system came to Sydney? How would it work, and how much waste would it save? Our producer Sam King spoke to Stuart White, who was the lead researcher in a 2001 report looking at the feasibility for a cash-for-can scheme here in New South Wales. He asked Stuart how things have progressed since then and what benefits the scheme could bring. There's been a a continuing public campaign. We've seen other states, uh, particularly Northern Territory, other states and territories, Northern Territory and uh, also Western Australia were quite interested but haven't yet done that. So we've seen quite a change in the attitude towards it and the pressure that's being put forward by not just environment NGOs, but also by local government, who of course bear the cost of Mm. curbside recycling, that's probably led to the change in philosophy. How do you feel about the reverse earning machines? What are your thoughts on those? Well, I think when when we looked at it, uh, and this was quite a while ago, Mm. so the technology has almost certainly moved on since then, they looked to be cost effective only where you could get a very high density of returns. So really high trafficked areas and shopping centres and the like. So it will be interesting to see whether the technologies change sufficiently to enable them to be cost effective in lower density areas. This is going to be the challenge. And the other thing that we need to look at is that it should be integrated with the return of other materials. As we push extended producer responsibility out through the economy and we start to look at other products uh, like um, uh, electronic goods and equipment, uh, batteries and paint and uh, other materials. Yeah, exactly, mobile phones. So we've got some very successful models, Mm -hmm. but they're all quite fragmented. So if we start to integrate those, then you see the potential for depots to become a place where containers can become the regular throughput that pays for the depot. And then we can Mm -hmm. add paint and electronic equipment, white goods and so on. Sounds very optimistic. Why do you think it's taken 15 years to get here? Was it that continuous pressure or? Absolutely, the pressure has been absolutely enormous. I mean, these are billion dollar industries and don't forget they prevented it from happening in the the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, when it happened in uh, Oregon and Washington state, uh, and shortly after that, Don Dunstan introduced it in uh, South Australia, 
uh, immediately the lobbyists came over from the US to make sure it didn't happen in New South Wales where it was about to. Right. And this is, so in fact, it hasn't taken 15 years, it's taken 40 years. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, why did it happen in South Australia? What, how did the lobbyists trip up there, I guess? Uh, it happened too quickly, I think. Right. There was uh, quite a strong public campaign. There were, uh, and this was at a time when the emergence of the aluminium can, the emergence of once through packaging was starting to happen. Uh, and uh, this was, so litter was the driver then, rather than uh, perhaps as a proxy for broader environmental concerns. But there were marches down the street of, uh, of Adelaide called Ban the Can you marches. Can, yeah. And uh, so Don Dunstan introduced it quite quickly based on the Oregon and Washington state examples. And that was recognised, uh, it just happened so quickly, I think, that the industry weren't able to respond in a, uh, in a timely way. What are some of the... Um I guess, tactics you've seen from the lobbyists to prevent legislation like this going forward? Well, the, the major one has been to uh, fund campaigns or fund programs to a small extent relative to the size of their turnover uh, in order to, uh, to be seen to be dealing with the problem. So, for example, in the very beginning, uh, the funding uh, by the um, uh, packaging industry of the litter reduction campaigns uh, the do the right thing in other campaigns okay. uh, was in New South Wales. Those those uh, funding uh, measures were put in place, and it was quite linked to uh, not bringing in uh, more punitive or regulatory measures or extended producer responsibility. Half measures. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, we're talking about significant amounts of money for litter campaigns, mm -hmm. but compared to the cost of recovery of containers, it was a relatively small amount. So we see that through the years and then as the impact uh, of uh, uh, container products became, we became aware of the recycling issue and of the uh, generation of waste as distinct from litter. Mm -hmm. uh, then we saw the Litter Reduction and Recycling Association was formed. So mm -hmm. it became broadened in scope and there was strong lobbying to support uh, curbside recycling. And then of course we saw the uh, product stewardship uh, develop, which again was a measure to say, if you don't regulate us, we will do these voluntary measures in order to reduce packaging and reduce waste. Okay. And of course, uh, the, they were you know significant, but they still only recover less than 50% of the containers. Yeah. Just moving forward to where we are now, I want to get your opinion on the argument put forward by Keep New South Wales Beautiful along the lines of how we need a cultural change rather than a cash incentive to recycle. They're in favour of the scheme, but it is an interesting point. Well, what do you make of it? Yeah, no, it's a really interesting one, and it came up uh, during our review, uh, is the idea of uh, if you use a deposit and refund scheme, uh, you're monetizing something that people would normally do out of the goodness of their hearts. Now, I mean, at one level, you could just be pragmatic and say, well, if you have a deposit scheme, you get over 80% recovery. If you don't, you get less than 50%. So therefore, you'll double. So pragmatically, if you want the outcome, <laughs> you, you need to put in place such a scheme. It's, it, there's no evidence at all that South Australia doesn't have a strong culture. They have had a deposit scheme since the late 1970s. In fact, it could be argued, uh, partly because they're so proud of that scheme and it's so embedded in their culture and it's linked to the scouts and it's linked to NGOs, uh, you could argue that they actually have a much stronger culture of being aware of these things and 
uh, reducing litter uh, out of the goodness of their heart. So they've actually got quite strong recycling rates. And they've seen, yeah, they've seen great success with with uh, with the container deposit legislation. Are you optimistic about our version? I think uh, it's it's going to be hard to tell, but uh, of course there's a strong commitment to make it work, and there'll be a lot of people looking at it quite closely and helping to ensure that it works. So that's that's in its favour. And once you put in place a system like that. Uh, if the recovery rates slip, then obviously people will be looking at why they're slipping. Mm. If they're not as high as we expect them to be, then presumably uh, the system will be tweaked to make sure that it does increase and there'll be a number of people scrutinising that. But the principle of having the system in place and having it as a good system, having a 10 cent deposit as distinct from five, you know, that's better than uh, five cents, uh, having it apply to a broad range of containers, unlike many of the historical North American ones, which just apply to soft drinks and beer, uh, and having it um, with ubiquitous collection points. I mean, these are the three main success factors. Uh, so it's got to work pretty well, uh, and you would expect over an 85% recovery rate. Professor Stuart White, Director of the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking to Sam King. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. For more info about what you've heard today, you can head along to our website, which is 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Lee Beta. See you next week. Thank you.